Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I want to welcome everyone to the uh, A. Richard Newton Distinguished Innovator Lecture Series. Uh, tonight we have uh, a very distinguished guest. Kaval Desai is partner at InterWest. Uh, he focuses on investments in internet and mobile startups. His uh, over 20-year history in Silicon Valley includes holding roles at Google, Dig, McKinsey, Global Village Communication, and Tandem Computers. His prior investment experience includes Onset Ventures and Morgan Stanley Venture Partners. We are happy to have him as part of the UC family. He received his master's in computer science from UC Santa Barbara, and uh, we are extremely happy that uh, he received his MBA from UC Berkeley. He co-founded the UC Berkeley Business Plan Competition and currently sits on the board of the Lester Center for Entrepreneurship at the Haas School of Business. So please uh, join me in welcoming Kaval Desai. Thank you, Robert. Um, Good evening, guys. It's great to be here. Um, I can literally say that I've been in your shoes uh, sitting in these... Um, chairs. Uh, as a student at the business school, um, it's been a privilege to come back to the campus. Um, I've been here a couple of times talking about a topic not too dissimilar to what I'm going to share with you guys today. Um, now, I know that uh, since I graduated, the schools install Wi-Fi in every class, so many of you are online and probably playing city well, um, but there will be cold calling in this class, so pay attention. Um, even those who are at the back benches. That's where I used to sit, so I know what goes on over there. Um, <laughs> but seriously, it's great to be here. Thanks for spending your uh, fine uh, Tuesday evening with me. Uh, what I thought I would do is talk about a topic that doesn't really get talked about a whole lot in, in, in schools or um, in uh, private sector, which is product management and product development. And if you're thinking about starting a company, in particular in Silicon Valley, which is, which is sort of my experience, I'll talk about you know, what I know and where I, where I learned it, uh, you have to know the biases of the speaker before you give credence to anything he or she says. Uh, but if you're going to start a company in Silicon Valley, um, which I think many of you will end up doing or probably are doing right now, um, this concept of how do you take an idea from inception to its first product launch, the first customer, to the next customer, and then hopefully to revenue and to profitability, and then eventually to bigger success, that first phase of product development, I think, is one of the most crucial phases of a company. And I think that's a phase where most, most people get it wrong. Uh, and I've been fortunate to go through many, many failures uh, and some successes in that phase where you take an idea, again, from conception to reality. And I want to share some of those stories with you guys in the hope that perhaps those lessons might be useful to you as you go on to your uh, future success. Um, so as I share that, let's make it an interactive session. I'm going to, again, tell some stories uh, you may have some questions, some comments, maybe s- perhaps some disagreements based on your experience. So invite all of those opinions and let, let's talk. Um, so first things first, before you, before you uh, listen to the speaker, you have to know their biases. So these are my products. These are the products that I've been fortunate enough to get involved with, starting uh, to your left. Uh, I started my career in Silicon Valley in 91, uh, straight out of graduating from Santa Barbara. Uh, and I worked at a company called Tandem Computers, the mainframe. Uh, that's how we used to call cloud computing back in the days. Um, 
there was a big computer, and it was only one computer, and it was massive. It was, looked like a refrigerator. Uh, and Tandem was a very successful company that did something called fault-tolerant computing, where you could pull out the CPU, you could pull out the uh, disk drive, you could pull, pull out even the power supply, and the machine would still keep running. Uh, and it's like, well, how do you do that? Uh, and there's a whole field of computer science that's dedicated to, um, to innovating that in that discipline, which is fault-tolerant computing. And these are the computers that run um, the New York Stock Exchange, your ATMs, um, you know, dialysis machines, anywhere where you cannot tolerate a failure for even a microsecond. Uh, that's what we were doing at the time. And then I went on um, sort of down the stack. I started working on smaller and smaller products. Co worked at a company called Global Village Communication in the mid-90s, which did fax modems. So many of you know, may not even know what a fax modem is. But it used to be a device, a little thing, that you would attach to your computer, a PC or a Mac, and you would send faxes to people. Um, people used to do that at, at one time in life. Um, and then I moved on and sort of, uh, after business school, ended up starting a company uh, called Achex, A-C-H-E-X, which is basically using the automated clearinghouse network in the US uh, to facilitate payments between individuals and businesses. This is the same network that you, uh, that you use to uh, do a direct deposit of a bank, bank account or a check in a bank account. Uh, it's a federally mandated US network. Uh, and we used it to facilitate payments to online companies that are like Walmart and Kmart that were just coming online in the late 90s. So I learned a lot about um, how do you facilitate uh, internet payments uh, in the very sort of early, early days of the online uh, e-commerce market. And then I moved on and uh, spent uh, seven years at Google, uh, which was a, um, uh, a laboratory for learning uh, a variety of things. Uh, how, do you, how do you hire the best people? How do you motivate them? How do you launch products at global scale? How do you focus on the end user? How do you do innovation on a variety of fields in parallel? And I'll, I'll talk about a few of those stories. And then finally, just last year, I spent um, a year at a company called Dig, which is a social news site, which is sort of the pioneer in this, uh, what people call the Web 2.0 era, which is taking the, uh, the community aspect of, of uh, real you know, everyday life and pulling that on the internet to curate, uh, curate information and uh, provide people with um, a digest of, of news that might be of relevance to them. Uh, and then earlier this year, I joined uh, a venture capital firm where I get to invest in some of these entrepreneurs and ideas that are um, forming the future of, future of the uh, online commerce. Um, so anyway, that's my bias. So everything I know is uh, within Silicon Valley, which is a good news and bad news story. Keep that in mind, and you know, if you come from an area of the world outside of that, uh, your experiences and your, your insights might be different. Um, and, and that's good, and I, and I welcome uh, your input uh, in, those, in those areas. And by the way, this is my latest product. This is a two-year-old product uh, that is, um, I still haven't figured out how it actually works uh, or what influence I can have, but I'm learning every day. So let's do a quiz. Before we get into product management, product development, let's sort of step back and talk about this, the context, the current context that all of us are living in. Okay, so this is sort of like the Jeopardy style quiz. Uh, these are answers, and we've got to come up with the right questions. Okay, let's start with the, um, the outermost concentric circle. So the number 7 billion. Anybody know what that is? Thank you. How many people are living in the world? So I think there was a stat published by the UN last month that said in October this month there will be seven billion people on the planet. Okay, so that's the thank you. That's that's the that's the the number total total addressable market, if you will, for anything that you are doing as of today. Seven billion people. Okay, uh, what is two billion? The next circle. Anyone in the back? Right here. People with internet. Great. 
So 2 billion people have access to internet on a daily basis, whether it's through a fixed internet, uh, you know, DSL or cable modem, uh, or a smartphone uh, that allows you access to the mobile data network. Okay? So that's the number of people who have access to the internet. It's a large number of people who have access to, to, um, to online services. Okay? What's 800 million? Anyone? The back. Yes? How many people have cell phones? Um, good guess. That might actually might be, uh, actually, the number of people with cell phones is even bigger than that if you include the feature phones, sort of the text, uh, text phones. Uh, no. 800 million is actually less than the number of um, cell phones in the world, but it's a very important number. Number of Facebook users. Um, that's right. There are 800 million people in the world who have a Facebook account. And according to Mark Zuckerberg, half of them are logged into Facebook every day. It's a pretty phenomenal number, right? Just think about that, okay? So why is that relevant? If you, could, you could, for example, build a product or a service and just put it on Facebook, and you would be addressing a population that's larger than the population of the United States, right? It's a pretty big market. All right, um, what is 500 million? Somebody already said something very close to that. 500 million. Going once, going twice. Yes, right at the back. Smartphones, very good. So 500 million is actually the number of smartphones shipped every year. Um, actually, this was the number for, for this year, projected for this year, 2011. This includes everything from iPhones to Android phones to Blackberries, anything that has access to the internet and can run a browser effectively. Right? That's what a smartphone would be at its simplest definition. So what does that mean? That means that you don't have to be in front of your computer to access the internet. I mean, all of you guys have a smartphone in your pocket. Most of you do. And so that's a pretty big market as well. And then 300 million, we already talked about. It's the population of the US. Okay? So the point of this slide is that we live in a very, very special time where there is tremendous opportunity ahead of us, no matter how you, how you size it. Even if you think that Facebook is very, very successful, and it is, 800 million people, it's still only about 10% of the world's population. Right? So you could start a social network today, and you still have the opportunity to go and get the other 90%. <laughs> right? That's a pretty big opportunity. Very few companies in the world actually get 90% market share. And if you do, the government wants to call you. Um, so that's a huge opportunity. And I think that's, that's a fundamental point to remember as you think about what you want to do next coming out of college. In every area, there is effectively unbounded opportunity, uh, right? Nothing is saturated. OK. Now, the other good news here is that this internet, you know, so 20 years ago, what, 1994, 95 is when Netscape went public, uh, sort, of, sort of the, the modern browser. Uh, so about, you know, 16, 17 years since that time, right? And, you know, Google went public in 2004. Um, so you, you think about just seven years ago, Google was a pretty interesting, relevant, and important company in our lives. And you know, most people thought, wow, there would not be another Google in our lifetime. And then Facebook comes along. And then you know, Facebook is pretty big and successful. Um, but the more interesting thing is that all of the stuff that was done, so when Netscape came along and the browser, browser became um, sort of a, a way of daily life for us, Every business, whether it was small business, large business, every individual started thinking about, how do I get my services to the internet? How do I start offering 
my products um, to people all over the world using this new medium called the World Wide Web. And so businesses went around retooling themselves for the internet, right? I mean, so there's this big explosion in um, opportunity, wealth creation, just a new way of doing things. Well, the good news is that all of those things, all of those businesses are now getting rebuilt again. And why are they getting rebuilt? Because two big things have happened. One is that real names have started coming online, right? All of us were on the, on the internet five years ago, 10 years ago, but we were not using our real names online. So if we bought something, if we commented an article, it was mostly through an anonymous identity that we had, or we had no identity, right? You use Google, nobody knows who you are. But that's not the case anymore. We do things online with our real names, just like we do things on, in, the, in the physical world with our real names. You go and buy things at a store, give your credit card, people know who you are. Okay, so that's a pretty big fundamental shift, and that's bringing the online ecosystem very close to the, to the physical ecosystem. That means that the, the online opportunity is gonna be as big as the physical world opportunity, right? Because there is really no distinction between the online identity and the, and the real world identity, right? So just think about that. And the second dimension, obviously, is mobile, right? The fact that you now have this device in your hand at all times in your life, um, anywhere you go. Again, all of these businesses are retooling themselves, reinventing themselves to provide their products and services to all of us through our mobile devices. So essentially, the world is getting rebuilt again, and that always provides for opportunity. And that how, far, how often does that happen, right? How many, how many times in the history of the world does, do, do things like this happen? Railroads came along, and companies reinvented themselves for that, right? Airlines came along, and companies retooled for them. Browser came along, so identity comes along mobile. So we're getting sort of a fifth or sixth shot at the goal again to do some really amazing big things. So that's pretty cool. Um, in the interest of time, I'll skip this. I mean, the idea here is that it used to be that it, when, I was, when I came to Silicon Valley 20 years ago, people would say, oh, mobile's gonna be around the corner five years from now, okay? Well, and it, and it, and it quite never was, right? It'd be always five years from now. It turns out it is here now, right? I mean, this kid is already on iPad. This is not a fake you know, Photoshop picture. This is a true picture. He, He's very comfortable, you know, two-year-old kid moving around uh, applications on his iPad with his finger. This is his future. The way he experiences the world is gonna be through a device like this or something similar to that. Um, and that's, that's the opportunity. There are seven billion people like that in the world, okay? All right, uh, so let's talk about product management, how things have changed. And this is sort of my experience having lived through, uh, through the Google um, uh, phase, which is, if you think about how products used to get developed 20 years ago, and we're talking about consumer products here. This is not about you know, business products, but consumer products, people that, products that you and I use. Anybody know what this product on the left is? It's a razor. What's the, this was a very specific razor, though. This is not just any random razor. This is the Gillette razor. What's it called? Mach 3. This was a, this was a, this was a major innovation in, in the... In the, in the category of razors, right? Why? Because it has three blades, right? Uh, and it was a big deal. I mean, who would thought of having three blades on a single razor? Insane. Uh, anybody know how much money was spent uh, before the first Mark, Mark III was ever shipped to a user? How much money was spent in research and development before the, before the first user got a Mark III? Any guesses? 400 million. 400 million, good guess, not even close. Someone else, higher than 400 million. Come on. 600 million, not even close. Go up. A billion, somebody said a billion. Yes, a billion dollars was spent. A billion dollars was spent doing research and development 
before a single user got access to the mark tree? How much money was spent before a single user, before the first user got access to a Google search engine? $100? That's a good guess. Um, I think it was probably zero. Because the initial product, proof of concept, was done at Stanford in the lab. Larry and Sergey were research students, graduate students. Um, and you know, their fellow students, classmates, started using it at the Stanford campus. So before the first user saw or got access to the Google search engine, it's probably about close to zero dollars. So why is that? Why did Gillette spend a billion dollars on the Mach 3 and Google was able to get it out with almost nothing? Why is that? What's the big difference? Say that again. Hardware versus software, yes, that's, that's part of it, absolutely. You've got to make a physical product. You've got to have some cost of goods. You have to have a manufacturing plant. You've got to have a distribution facility. You have to package it. You have to put it on a shelf, all of that, absolutely. What else? Yes? There was an established user base that you didn't want them to harm. There was an established user base that you want to harm, right. So there was a precedent. The, the customer expected something out of a razor. And you wanted to make sure that you at least had that and then some. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So you had to know what the market wanted. You had to go out and do some research. OK? What else? Yes? Well, just a question is, uh, you said $0 about, but I mean, these guys are on PhD scholarships, right? So, That's a good point. OK, you must be a business school student. Are you an MBA? <laughs> yes, there you go. So true cost of accounting, you're right. Uh, there is always a cost, which is you know the taxpayers. My Stanford public school, private school, somebody funded them. Yes, there was a there was a hidden cost. You're right. Um, thank you for that clarification. Um, but it wasn't a billion dollars. Would you accept that? Probably a hundred thousand. Okay. All right. Yes. Launching the Mac three involved some cost. Launching Google didn't involve any cost, so there was no necessity to invest in research and development for Google. Yeah, so similar to sort of the hardware-software difference and the fact that there was a prior precedent, you're right, that there wasn't a, the cost of launching Google, or the cost of failure, if you will, was effectively zero. You, if, if you launched Google search engine, people didn't like it, so what? You could go back to the drawing boards and do it again. A razor blade didn't work, could have some problems, right? There's a cost, the cost of failure is a little bit higher. So, I think all of these things are right. You guys are onto, onto something, which is that if you think about how internet products get shipped, it's very different than how traditional consumer products get shipped. And there are two or three fundamental reasons for that. One is that the cost of failure is very, very low for a consumer internet product, right? You go to Amazon, you try to buy something, it doesn't work, okay? Come back and try it again. You get frustrated, you don't have time, but other than that, you're not, losing much. You go to Google, you type in the keywords, you don't get the right search uh, results. Okay, you get frustrated, but the cost of failure is not that high. Second thing, you talked about physical versus soft goods. The entire distribution channel is gone, or, right? Or it's there, but it's in a very different format. You don't have a physical distribution channel. You do not have to ship things, manufacture things, ship things, uh, put them on shelves. Marketing, marketing still exists as a cost, but it's done in a very different way. So the physical distribution channel is gone, replaced by a virtual channel. And I think the biggest difference, in my view, is that the way you do market research, you talked about the fact that there was a precedent with the razor. That's right. 
you had to go and ask people what they expected in a razor. What would be a better razor? You had to go and talk to people. How would you talk to people? You go and meet them. You go to China. You go to Brazil. Everybody uses a razor, right? You have to go and meet these people. You do surveys. You get all the data back. Then you create statistical regression tables. You look at, well, if we had two different products with you know, two blades or three blades at a certain price point, how would the users react? So all of that takes time, tremendous amount of time and money. Well, how does Google do market research? Yes? When they test a little tweak to their algorithm, they have a mechanism where they can send a, a small percentage of the searches through that changed algorithm. Yeah, so there is something called a 1% experiment. You basically take 1% of your traffic and you show them a different UI or a different search result or a different color and you measure their reaction. Well, how do you measure their reaction? It's in your logs. The consumers are on your site. So the time it takes to poll your audience with a new change or a new feature or a new product, take that feedback and iterate on it is the is fraction of the time that it would take Gillette. Right? Because the users are on the internet. You can collect data instantaneously. You can look at that result the next morning and ship a new version. So this idea of launch and iterate, launch and iterate. Launch and iterate could not be done with the Mark III. You couldn't launch and iterate. You had to get it right the first time because the cost of iterating is very, very high. So I think this actually is a fundamental concept that, that I hope you take away at least as one of the key, key points from the tonight's uh, discussion, which is that if you're doing product management, and this becomes a very real issue. Let's say you have you know, two or three founders who start a company. And you get into a situation where you have a heated debate about what should be in your product. What features are really relevant? Okay. How do you resolve that debate? We can argue about it. You can theorize about it. You can write strategy papers. You can talk to 10 people. Or you could launch an iterate. Right? And I would suggest to you that launching and iterating is the best way to resolve that debate because you can get data. It's much easier to get data on the internet. So use that to your advantage. Does it make sense? It's the number one fundamental point of doing product development on the web. It's very different, by the way, for the mobile device, right? Where you, when you had to ship an app and you had to put it into an app store and wait for people to download it and then use it and then get feedback, that's not the same as launch and iterate, right? It's still better than Gillette, but it's not the same as putting something on the web and getting feedback on it. So keep that in mind. All right. The second thing that, that becomes a, a hot topic of discussion is, you know, what do you do about competition? You're entering a market. You have a pretty strong thesis about what the users want. You think a three-blade razor is going to be better than a you know, single-blade one. But somebody else has got the same idea, and they're doing it as well. Or do you think they're about to do it. So how do you react to that? What do you do about the competitive response? And one of the things that, that we talked about a lot at Google, and I think it, it works pretty well, is that focus on the end user, not on the competition. Because there is not a whole lot, A, there is not a whole lot you can do about the competition, and B, if you're looking at the competitor's moves, by definition, you are one step behind. Because guess what the competitor is looking at to figure out their strategy? Hopefully, they're looking at the end user, right? Somebody's got to be looking at the end user. <laughs> if your competitor is not looking at the end user, you're following the wrong horse anyways. Um, 
So might as well get to the end user first yourself. Right? It's like driving forward looking through the windshield or driving forward looking in the rear view mirror. One of them is going to succeed in the long run. Right? So I would suggest, perhaps controversially, that competition is almost irrelevant to your product strategy. Just focus on what the user wants. If the competitor has a better product, the users will tell you that. Right? They're going to say, look, I already have a better solution. You don't need to look at the competitor. Just focus on the end user. So that's point number two. I don't know what stories you were told when you were growing up. But on the internet, slow never wins. So why is that? Why is that? Um, I don't know if you remember, but uh, if any of you who were, who were around in 1999, 2000, um, if you had used the Google search engine, um, you know the number one thing you saw was that it was fast. I mean, it wasn't the most comprehensive search engine. It was reasonably accurate, but the number one thing was that it was really, really fast. You entered a keyword and the results came back right away. It was super fast. And if you think about sort of the Google product strategy, whether it's Chrome or even the Android devices, I mean, the one fundamental attribute of all Google products is that they're very, very fast. The response time is super fast. And in fact, if you if your friends and colleagues who work at Google or have worked at Google, they'll they'll tell you that within the company that was a fundamental pillar of product strategy. Make sure everything is super fast. And why is that? It's that when you have something that's fast, you, you experience that product, there is a certain amount of joy, an inert sort of happiness that comes from using it, right? It doesn't waste your time. It, it, the product respects you, and you respect it back. Everybody's busy. You don't have time most sort of you know rare commodity of our of our generation we don't have a stretch for time so if something is really fast you appreciate it okay. and you know many of you in the room are computer scientists I think it's as you know it's very hard to do things um, in software even in hardware um, to make it to make things fast you have to simplify your coding you have to focus on the core essentials you have to get rid of the baggage if you will this concept of minimum viable product, you've probably heard about it. Where does that come from? It comes from just focus on the bare essentials, right? the necessary and sufficient, and nothing else. If you focus on that, everything just becomes really fast, and it delights users. <clears throat> localization from day one. L10N stands for localization, right? I think most of you know that. So, why is that? Again, the internet, the distribution channel is global from day one. You put something on the website, you have no control over who is using that service at that point. Anybody from any country could come and use your site. Well, why not offer that service from day one in their local language, in their local um, currency units? Because the entire market, you know, the entire world is your market. <clears throat> so think about when you, as software engineers, product managers think about localization from day one. Um, in fact, most of your early growth in, in every company that I've been involved with, if you look at the growth of users, it's usually from outside the US because people outside the US, we talked about you know, there are 2 billion people on the internet worldwide. Well, almost everybody in the US has access to internet, right? 
But outside the world, that's not the case. So as people come online for the first time, guess what do they do? They try and explore. They go out and try out these new services. They, you know, they go try out a new search engine, a new email product, a new maps product, a new commerce site, a new news site. Well, you want to grab them. You want to grab them on day one and convert them into your loyal users. Right? They have no preconceived notions about any of these products. They've never seen them before. Right? Your competition has no advantage over you when somebody's coming online on day one. Right? So wouldn't it be a great opportunity to offer users from Indonesia and Brazil and you know, parts of Africa who've never been online before? And the first, time, first thing they do is they use your product. That's a great experience if you wow them. This sort of goes back to our feedback loop thing. Um, and sort of, instead of arguing, use data. Um, you know, try, when in doubt, try out both. And, or, or multiple variations of something and get data. And you know, it works in life. It should work on the internet, too. <laughs> all right. And then sort of final point on you build a great product. You've done all the things. You, know, you localize it on day one. You have it's super fast. Uh, you have you know, multiple variations of you know, key concepts. You're getting data. Okay, that's all great. How do you actually acquire customers? So you know, 40, 50 years ago, even, even in some cases even today, you, where do you go and get your users? Where do you get millions of users? You go to television, right? That's where people are. That's where millions of people are glued to a program. You go and advertise on television. People did that even you know, 10 years ago. You know, remember Pets.com commercials? I mean, go and get users there. I would say about seven, eight years ago, um, Google became a very um, good source of getting users for your product. Why? Because everybody was going and searching on Google, or a lot of people were going on Google. So if you wanted to get users, you'd go there. And now I think you, know, you would argue that it's certainly Facebook, given that they have 800 million users with real names. It's a place where you go and acquire users. But I think these are sort of the three traditional ways. There might be others. Um, I mean, one of the biggest things you can do on a very small scale is you know, all of you in this classroom, if you're launching a new product, well, at least tell everybody around you in here. You know, stand up here and do a 30-second promo and get all of you to use it, and then tell their friends to use it. But overall, I mean, these are the three big buckets for getting millions of users um, for your product or business. And then sort of a last, last um, point on you get the product, you have millions of people using it. How do you make money? What's the business model? And there are many, many business models. Right? You charge people, you, you, know, you, you, um, you, you pay, charge them a subscription, you, you charge them on a per transaction basis. The point about advertising. So advertising actually does work on the internet now. It used to be that it didn't work. It was a disaster. If you look at 10 years ago, banner ads, people, not, people getting banner blindness, it was a broken model. But the good news is that it's actually a very, very efficient model now. Um, people are used to getting good commercial information, um, also known as ads, um, on the internet, and they use them to their benefit. So the key point here is that ads are not bad. Bad ads are bad. And if you think about how you present good ads or valuable inf commercial information to users, users will accept it. Right? I mean, that's, that's the entire, uh, or almost, almost the entire Google business model. Um, you know, about $25, $28 billion annually in advertising revenue by putting good ads in front of users. So this does work, and you can use it to your advantage. OK, so you build your product. Things are going great. And because things are going great, you need to expand the company. You need to expand your team, right? Because you have 
more things than the, the original team that started the company can do, so you need more resources. Okay. So this is another fundamental point. It's, and it goes into product management, the, the, the thinking about product management, because the way, you, the way you design your next product, right? So you build your first product, you, got success, you became successful. Well, how do you design your next product? It's a very, very key um, item to think through. And usually what happens is that to do your next product, you, again, you add some, some members to your team. And the question is, well, how do you hire for those people? What do you look for? Okay, and I think hiring is, of all the things you could, all the things you need to think about to scale your business, I think hiring is the most important one. And if you get it right, everything else will follow. If you get it wrong, almost nothing else will matter because it's so key, right? So this is my thesis. This doesn't mean, this, this is my personal observation and what I sort of try to have done in my companies or try to advocate to the companies that I'm investing, which is think of hiring as recursion, right? So you guys, most of you are computer scientists, you understand what recursion is. So what is recursion? So let's say you, so you're a founder, right? Um, let's say you're a founder, let's pick one of you. You're a founder, you started a company, okay? Are you an engineer? Not an engineer. What, what's your, what do you do? Math, math, okay, close enough. So you're a mathematician, you start a company, um, and when you start a company, just because you're a math major doesn't mean that you only think about math issues. You think about everything. You think about getting office space, you think about paying the bills, you think about intellectual property, filing patents, you think about marketing your product, you think about um, getting revenue from the customer, you think about everything, right? When you start a company, you're an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship means you're a multifaceted individual. You think about everything, even though you might be a math major. Okay? And if you're successful, that means that you were actually pretty good at all of those things. Right? Okay, so what if when you start to hire for your next phase of growth, what if you could hire everyone who was like you? Not literally, but figuratively, right? In the sense that what if you could always hire entrepreneurs. So instead of thinking about hiring a finance person or a marketing person or a salesperson, what if you just said, I'm going to hire entrepreneurs? Does that make sense? It's a very different way of thinking about hiring, right? It's very hard to hire entrepreneurs, right? Because very, there are very few people who are a, excited about doing everything, and B, are good at it. So it's hard to hire entrepreneurs. But if you could do that, then I think it would be a pretty amazing company. Because that means that everybody in the company could pretty much do everything, and they could be like shapeshifters, right? If the company's needs changed tomorrow, somebody had to go and do more work in marketing, or more work in finance, or more work in sales, you wouldn't have to hire a whole new set of people. You can use the same set of folks you have who are sort of multifaceted and put them on those new priorities. And that's very important when you're a startup. You don't have too many resources. You can't only hire specialists. There are other ways of saying the same thing, which is hire for athletes and not for spe specialists, or hire for generalists, not for specialists. It's basically saying a hire for entrepreneurs. It's a very, very important skill set to screen for uh, in interviews. And frankly, this is where I see most of the companies um, 
not do well, which is not, not get their hiring criteria right. Okay, so let's say you hired people. Okay, you did the hiring right, now you got all the entrepreneurs. Okay, how do you how do you start pairing people? Okay, once you have you know more than 10, 20, 30 people and you're working on more than one product, you need to start organizing them into teams so that you know they're not getting in each other's ways, right? Because all, all human beings with good intentions without any sort of organization will, will create chaos. So one organizing principle that I've seen uh, sort of something that I, one of my mentors told me is when you're thinking about, and this is mostly about engineering and product organization, right? So this is not about sales or finance, but if you think about organizing, and, and there are many ways of organizing. You could have product be part of engineering, engineering be part of product. You can have a marketing function that's different than product management. But here's the thing that I, I've seen work really well, which is, by the way, what is this picture? So what, this is a downhill skier, right? And what do you need to do if you if you're a very successful downhill skier? What 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 do you need? Maybe decisive. That's a good point. What else? Yes. You see ahead of you. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. To be fast. But what else? What about the physical attributes of a downhill skier? What is it? Something very very specific about somebody who's able to ski downhill really really fast without falling down. Right equipment, yes. But what else? Balance. Balance is number one. So you need a very strong right leg and a very strong left leg. Balance is key when you're going down fast, downhill. Okay? And, and this is, again, this is in the context of Silicon Valley and the concept of technology companies. But in technology companies, the best ones get the balance of product and engineering right. Almost always, okay? And they create this partnership between the engineering leader and the product leader. And they're the sort of the symbiotic nucleus of the organization at all levels. And if you can create this partnership, this pairing, great things come out of it, okay? So what this says is it's a two-person team, at least. It's not a one-person team, right? So there's not a single decision maker. This is interesting, right? It's not a... There's not, it's not a dictatorial model. It's not that the engineering person decides um, all the time or the product person decides all the time. It is that there is a pairing. And they balance each other. And sometimes, depending on, the, depending on the topic at hand, one or the other could decide. That's fine. But for the most part, it's, it's a pairing. And it's, like, it's like a marriage. It's a partnership. Um, and both people have to understand that. If you get that right, again, great things come out of it. All right, finally, um, I know you guys have a class at 6, so I'll, uh, I'll try to be brief here. If you do all of those things right, you have a great product, you have a great team, you're scaling, you're doing great things, then I think the ultimate, ultimate or sort of the, the penultimate uh, pinnacle of success is that you get to be a platform. And one of my partners has this really uh, great quote where he says, look, you have to earn the right to be a platform, meaning that you have to have a killer app first, and then you tr translate that killer app uh, into a platform. Now, what's a platform? If you think about companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and others before that, they've actually played out the same playbook, a very, very simple one, but a, a difficult one to execute, which is that you first and foremost build a product for the end user. You delight them, right? You put it on your own 
website or your own app, whatever your distribution method is. But you build this killer app, something very, very simple that you do amazingly well, better than anybody else. It's a, you know, a three-blade razor. You do it everybody better than anybody else, and you become the world-dominant leader in that. Right? Great. Do that. Well, while you're doing that, and again, this is in the technology context, you're probably building a very sophisticated, interesting backend, the platform underneath it. Well, why not liberate your platform from your front-end application and allow other people to use your platform? All that investment you made in infrastructure, computer science, even marketing, even brand, what if you could take that and let other people leverage it? Does this sound familiar? Have you heard of Amazon and AWS and you sort of Google and the App Engine? I mean, all these Facebook and the Facebook open graph, all of these companies are following the same playbook. They've invested in building a great application for the end user. Along the way, they were building a great backend. They started liberating it. They invited other users, other developers, to develop on their own platform. That's the key test of a platform. Are other people developing on your infrastructure, not just your own developers? And then finally, if you can do that, extend that to the mobile experience. Okay. And why is that? Well, because the mobile device we talked about earlier is with you all the time. So if you sort of translate this into financial terms, this first phase gives you tremendous gross margins, right? Because every dollar you make on your product goes straight to your bottom line. You don't have to share it with anybody. But you probably don't get as many users. If you go and do phase two, you get a lot many more users, right? Because your platform is now powering other people's services, right? So for example, Think about AOL and Google search. Google's powering AOL's search. Uh, Facebook and Open Graph. You go to the Washington Post site, Facebook is powering some of their, um, the social recommendations on that site. So phase two allows you to get more users than you could on your own, but probably at a lower margin because you have to do some revenue sharing with these partners that are depending on your ecosystem. right? And then phase three doesn't necessarily get you more users, right? It's not that the, the person who is using your service on the mobile phone is not already using you on the web, but it gives you more engagement. They will be using your product more times a day or for a longer duration of the time because they have the phone with them much longer than they have the physical device, the, the PC or Mac in front of them, right? So high gross margins, more users, more engagement. Does, was there a question there? Yes. Great question. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, yeah, so the question is, what do we think about startups that are starting directly at phase two or phase three? They're building a platform first without necessarily going through phase one. And I think that, so my answer is that I think that even in that case, you will see them, the, the more successful platform companies, always do a showcase application first. They, they build an application to showcase the potential capabilities of their platform. And if they don't do that, then I think they're at the, at the mercy of other people's um, decisions in some ways. If you're only a platform without access to your own users or customers, then you rely on other, people, other developers to exploit the possibilities of your platform, build on top of it, and then launch applications to those end users. So I think you're almost always at a disadvantage 
because A, you don't get direct feedback from your users. You don't know. You, you will not be the first one to find out the deficiencies in your platform. It'll be the third parties who will first find out. And then they'll tell you. And then two, again, you're, you are dependent on other people using or exploiting your platform to its full potential. So I would recommend, I would suggest that even if you want to be a platform company in, in the end, you develop some applications first yourself to, to ignite the imagination of you know, other developers to see what, what can be done with your platform. Does that make sense? Great. Um, that's all I had. I know people have to leave around their class, so I'll, I'll stop here. But I'll be here. So if those who need to leave, please do so. Thank you for your time. I'll hang out and answer any more questions, comments, if you have them. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.